You can do important work outside of temples as you research and submit your family names. Finally, number three, go forward with faith. The Old Testament prophet Abraham received a great blessing from the Lord in his dispensation, sometimes referred to as the Abrahamic Covenant. Thousands of years later, the blessings of the dispensation of of the gospel of Abraham were restored. This occurred when the prophet Elias appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple. Through this restoration, each of you has access to the great blessings promised to Abraham. These blessings can be yours if you remain faithful and live worthy. In the pamphlet for the strength of youth, the First Presidency gives you some very practical instruction about how to go forward with faith. I summarize some of that counsel. To help you become all the Lord wants you to become, kneel each morning and night in prayer to your Father in Heaven. Study the scriptures each day and apply what you read to your life. Strive each day to be obedient. In all circumstances, follow the teachings of the prophets. Be humble and willing to listen to the Holy Ghost. The First Presidency's counsel is followed by a promise leading to promises that come through the blessings of Abraham. As you do these things, the Lord will make much more out of your life than you can by yourself. He will increase your opportunities, expand your vision, and strengthen you. He will give you the help you need to meet your trials and challenges. You will gain a stronger testimony and find true joy as you come to know your Father in Heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, and feel their love for you. To summarize, prepare for missionary service, attend the temple, and go forward with faith. Now, let's end where we began, stranded in the frigid parking lot asking, where are the keys? By the way, later that evening, I did miraculously find the keys that have fallen out of my pocket on the mountain. The Lord has shown us that He will not leave us standing in the bitter cold without keys or authority to lead us safely home to Him. If you are like me, you may often find yourself in daily life asking, Where are the keys to the office, the car, the house, or apartment? When this happens to me, I can't help but smile inside, for as I am looking for the keys, I find myself reflecting on restored priesthood keys and of President Thomas S. Monson, whom we sustain as prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on earth who possesses and is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys. Yes, the keys are safely in the possession of prophets, seers, and revelators. They are conferred, delegated, and assigned to others in accordance with the Lord's will under the direction of the President of the Church. I testify that priesthood authority and priesthood keys start the engine, open the gates of heaven, facilitate heavenly power, and pave the covenant pathway back to our loving Heavenly Father. I pray that you, the rising generation of young men and young women, will Press forward with a steadfastness in Christ that you may understand that it is your sacred privilege to act under the direction of those who hold priesthood keys that will unlock blessings, gifts, and powers of heaven for you. I testify of God the Father, 
our Savior and Redeemer Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Ghost, and of the restoration of the gospel in these, the latter days. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All that is of God encompasses love, light, and truth. Yet as human beings, we live in a fallen world, sometimes full of darkness and confusion. It comes as no surprise that mistakes will be made, injustices will occur, and sins will be committed. As a result, there is not a soul alive who will not, at one time or another, be the victim to someone else's careless actions, hurtful conduct, or even sinful behavior. That is one thing we all have in common. Gratefully, God, in His love and mercy for His children, has prepared a way to help us navigate these sometimes turbulent experiences of life. He has provided an escape for all who fall victim to the misdeeds of others. He has taught us that we can forgive. Even though we may be a victim once, we need not be a victim twice by carrying the burden of hate, bitterness, pain, resentment, or even revenge. We can forgive and we can be free. Many years ago, while mending a fence, a small sliver of wood entered into my finger. I made a meager attempt to remove the sliver and thought I had done so, but apparently I had not. As time went on, skin grew over the sliver, creating a lump on my finger. It was annoying and sometimes painful. Years later, I decided to finally take action. All I did was simply apply ointment to the lump and cover it with a bandage. I repeated this process frequently. You cannot imagine my surprise when one day, as I removed the bandage, the sliver had emerged from my finger. The ointment had softened the skin and created an escape for the very thing that had caused pain for so many years. Once the sliver was removed, the finger quickly healed, and to this day there remains no evidence of any injury. In a similar way, an unforgiving heart harbors so much needless pain. When we apply the healing ointment of the Savior's Atonement, He will soften our heart and help us to change. He can heal the wounded soul. I am convinced that most of us want to forgive, but we find it very hard to do. When we have experienced an injustice, we may be quick to say, That person did wrong. They deserve punishment. Where is the justice? We mistakenly think that if we forgive, somehow justice will not be served and punishments will be avoided. This simply is not the case. God will mete out a punishment that is fair, for mercy cannot rob justice. God lovingly assures you and me, Leave judgment alone with me, for it is mine, and I will repay, but let peace be with you. The Book of Mormon prophet Jacob also promised that God will console you in your afflictions. He will plead your cause and send down justice upon those who seek your destruction. As victims, if we are faithful, we can take great comfort in knowing that God will compensate us for every injustice we experience. Elder Joseph B. Worthlin stated, The Lord compensates the faithful for every loss, 
Every tear today will eventually be returned a hundredfold with tears of rejoicing and gratitude. End quote. As we strive to forgive others, let us also try to remember that we are all growing spiritually, but we are all at different levels. While it is easy to observe the changes and growth in the physical body, it is difficult to see the growth in our spirits. One key to forgiving others is to try to see them as God sees them. At times, God may part the curtain and bless us with the gift to see into the heart, soul, and spirit of another person who has offended us. This insight may even lead to an overwhelming love for that person. The scriptures teach us that God's love for His children is perfect. He knows their potential for good, regardless of their past. By all accounts, there could not have been a more aggressive or harsh enemy of the followers of Jesus Christ than Saul of Tarsus. Yet, once God showed Saul light and truth, there was never a more devoted, enthusiastic, or fearless disciple of the Savior. Saul became the Apostle Paul. His life offers a wonderful example that God sees people not only as they currently are, but also as they may become. We all have in our own lives Saul-like individuals with Paul-like potential. Can you imagine how our families, communities, and the world at large might change if we all tried to see each other as God sees us? Too often we look at the offender the way we would look at an iceberg. We see only the tip and not beneath the surface. We do not know all that is going on in a person's life. We do not know their past. We do not know their struggles. We do not know the pains they carry. Brothers and sisters, please do not misunderstand. To forgive is not to condone. We do not rationalize bad behavior or allow someone to mistreat us because of their struggles, pains, or weaknesses. But we can gain greater understanding and peace when we see with a broader perspective. Certainly, those who are less spiritually mature may indeed make serious mistakes. Yet none of us should be defined only by the worst thing we have ever done. God is the perfect judge. He sees beneath the surface. He knows all and sees all. He has said, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. Christ himself, when he was unjustly accused, then savagely assaulted, beaten, and left suffering upon the cross, in that very moment said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In our short-sightedness, we may sometimes find it easy to develop resentments toward others who do not think or act the way we do. We may form intolerant attitudes based on such superficial things as rooting for opposing sports teams, holding different political views, or having different religious beliefs. President Russell M. Nelson gave wise counsel when he said, Opportunities to listen to those of diverse religious, political, or political persuasion can promote tolerance and learning. The Book of Mormon speaks of a time when the people of the Church began to be lifted up in the pride of their eyes and began to be scornful one toward another and began to persecute those that did not believe according to their own will and pleasure. 
Let us all remember that God looketh not upon the color of the jersey or the political party. Instead, as Ammon declared, God looketh down upon all the children of men. He knows all the thoughts and intents of the heart. Brothers and sisters, in the competitions of life, if we win, let us win with grace. If we lose, let us lose with grace. For if we live with grace toward one another, grace shall be our reward at the last day. Just as we are all victims to the misdeeds of others at one time or another, we are also sometimes the offender. We all fall short and have need of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We must remember that forgiveness of our own sins and offenses is conditioned upon our forgiving others. The Savior said, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Of all the things the Savior could have said in the Lord's Prayer, which is remarkably short, it is interesting that He chose to include and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is the very reason God sent His Son. So let us rejoice in His offering to heal us all. The Savior's Atonement is not just for those who need to repent. It is also for those who need to forgive. If you are having trouble forgiving another person or even yourself, ask God to help you. Forgiveness is a glorious healing principle. We do not need to be a victim twice. We can forgive. I witness of God's enduring love and patience for all of His children and of His desire that we love one another as He loves us. As we do so, we will break through the darkness of this world into the glory and majesty of His kingdom in heaven. We will be free. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We are blessed in the Church to have a collection of hymns which help us worship through song. In our Church meetings, the hymns invite the Spirit of the Lord, create a feeling of reverence, unify us as members, and provide a way for us to offer praises to the Lord. Some of the greatest sermons are preached by the singing of hymns. Just a few months after the Church was organized, a revelation was received by the Prophet Joseph Smith For his wife, Emma, the Lord directed her to make a selection of sacred hymns, as it shall be given thee, which is pleasing unto me, to be had in my church. Emma Emma Smith assembled a collection of hymns, which first appeared in this small hymnal in Kirtland in 1836. There were only 90 songs included in this thin little uh, booklet. Many of them were hymns from other Protestant faiths. Twenty-six of them were composed by William W. Phelps, who later prepared and assisted in the printing of the hymnal. Only the lyrics were written. No musical uh, notes accompanied the text. This humble little hymnal proved to be a great blessing to the early members of the Church. The latest edition of our English-language hymnal was published in 1985. Many of the selections which Emma chose so many years earlier are still included uh, in our hymn book, such as I Know That My Redeemer Lives, 
and how firm a foundation. One song that was new to the 1985 hymnal is Be Thou Humble. This tranquil hymn was written by Grecia Terberg Rowley, who passed away last year. She joined the church in 1950 in Hawaii, where she was teaching school. Sister Rowley served on the General Music Committee and helped to adapt the hymns into multiple languages. She based her text for Be Thou Humble on two verses of Scripture, Doctrine and Covenants, section 112, verse 10, and Ether, chapter 12, verse 27. The verse in Ether reads, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Like all of the Church's hymns, Be Thou Humble teaches pure and simple truths. It teaches us that if we humble ourselves, our prayers are answered. We enjoy peace of mind. We serve more effectively in our callings. And if we continue to be faithful, we will ultimately return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. The Savior taught His followers that they must humble themselves as a little child in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. As we raise our own children, we need to help them remain humble as they mature into adulthood. We do not do this by breaking their spirit through unkindness or being too harsh in our discipline. While nurturing their self-confidence and self-esteem, we need to teach them the qualities of selflessness, kindness, obedience, lack of pride, civility, and unpretentiousness. We need them to learn to take joy in the success of siblings and friends. President Howard W. Hunter taught, Our genuine concern should be for the success of others. Close quote. If not, they can become possessed, obsessed with self-promotion and outdoing others, jealousy and resentment for the triumphs of peers. I'm grateful for a mother that when seeing I was becoming too full of myself as a boy would say, Son, a little bit of humility right now would go a long way. (laughs) But humility is not something reserved to be taught only to children. We must all strive to become more humble. Humility is essential to gain the blessings of the gospel. Humility enables us to have broken hearts when we sin or make mistakes and makes it possible for us to repent. Humility enables us to be better parents, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, neighbors and friends. On the other hand, unnecessary pride can dissolve family relationships, break up marriages, and destroy friendships. It is especially important to remember humility when you feel contention rising in your home. Think of all the heartache you can avoid by humbling yourself to say, I'm sorry, that was inconsiderate of me. What would you like to do? I just wasn't thinking, or I'm very proud of you. If these little phrases were humbly used, there would be less contention and more peace in our homes. Simply living life can be and often is a humbling experience. Accident and illness, the death of loved ones, problems in relationships, even financial reversals can bring us to our knees. 
Whether these difficult experiences come through no fault of our own or through bad decisions and poor judgment, these trials are all humbling. If we choose to be spiritually attuned and remain humble and teachable, our prayers become more earnest and faith and testimony will grow as we overcome the tribulations of mortal existence. All of us look forward to exaltation, but before this can occur, we must persevere what has been referred to as the Valley of Humility. Many years ago, our 15-year-old son, Eric, suffered a serious head injury. Seeing him in a coma for over a week broke our hearts. The doctors told us they were uncertain about what would happen next. Obviously, we were thrilled when, we began, when he began to regain consciousness. We thought now everything was going to be fine, but we were mistaken. When he awoke, he could not walk or talk or feed himself. Worst of all, he had no short-term memory. He could remember most everything before the accident, but he had no ability to remember events after, even things which had happened only minutes earlier. For a time, we worried we would have a son locked in the mind of a 15-year-old. Things had come very easily to our boy before this accident. He was athletic, popular, and did very well in school. Before, his future seemed bright. Now we worried he may not have much of a future, at least one he could remember. He now struggled to relearn very, very basic skills. This was a very humbling time for him. It was also a very humbling time for his parents. Honestly, we wondered how such a thing could happen. We had always strived to do the right things. Living the gospel had been a high priority for our family. We couldn't understand how something so painful could happen to us. We were driven to our knees as it soon became apparent his rehabilitation would take months, even years. More difficult still was the gradual realization he would not be as he was before. During this time, many tears were shed, and our prayers became even more heartfelt and sincere. Through the eyes of humility, we gradually began to see small miracles which our son experienced during this, during this painful time. He began making gradual improvement. His attitude and outlook were very positive. Today, our son Eric is married to a wonderful companion, and they have five beautiful children. He is a passionate educator and contributor to his community as well as the Church. Most importantly, he continues to live in the same spirit of humility he gained long ago. But what if we could be humble before we walk through that valley of humility? Alma taught, Blessed are they who humble themselves without being compelled to be humble. Yea, they are much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble. I'm grateful for prophets who have taught us, like Alma, this great worth of this attribute. Spencer W. Kimball, the 12th president of the Church, said, How does one get humble? To me, one must constantly be reminded of his dependence. On whom dependent? On the Lord. How remind oneself? By real, constant, worshipful, grateful prayer. Close quote. 
It should come as no surprise that President Kimball's favorite hymn was, I Need Thee Every Hour. Elder Dallin H. Oaks reported that this was the most oft-sung opening hymn by the Brethren in the temple during his early years in the Quorum of the Twelve. He said, Picture the spiritual impact of a handful of the Lord's servants singing that song before praying for His guidance and fulfilling their mighty responsibilities. I testify of the importance of humility in our lives. I'm grateful for the individuals like Sister Grecia Roli, who have penned inspiring words and music, which help us learn the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which include humility. I'm grateful that we have a legacy of hymns which helps us to worship through song. And I am grateful for humility. It is my prayer that we will all strive for humility in our lives so we might become better parents, sons and daughters, and followers of the Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
We thank all who have participated this morning and express special gratitude to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music they have provided. Our concluding speaker for this session will be Elder Dale G. Renland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, Come, Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Arnulfo Valenzuela of the Seventy. My dear brothers and sisters, while living in Africa, I sought advice from Elder Wilford W. Anderson of the Seventy about helping saints who live in poverty. Among the remarkable insights he shared with me was this. The greater the distance between the giver and the receiver, the more the receiver develops a sense of entitlement. This principle underlies the Church's welfare system. When members aren't able to meet their own needs, they turn first to their families. Thereafter, if necessary, they can also turn to their local Church leaders for assistance with their temporal needs. Family members and local Church leaders are closest to those in need, frequently have faced similar circumstances, and, and understand best how to help. Because of their proximity to the givers, recipients who receive help according to this pattern are grateful and less likely to feel entitled. The concept, the greater the distance between the giver and the receiver, the more the receiver develops a sense of entitlement, also has profound spiritual applications. Our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, are the ultimate givers. The more we distance ourselves from them, the more entitled we feel. We begin to think that we deserve grace and are owed blessings. We are more prone to look around, identify inequities, and feel aggrieved, even offended, by the unfairness we perceive. While the unfairness can range from trivial to gut-wrenching, when we are distant from God, even small inequities loom large. We feel that God has an obligation to fix things and fix them right now. The difference made by our proximity to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ is illustrated in the Book of Mormon in the stark contrast between Nephi and his older brothers Laman and Lemuel. Nephi had great desires to know the mysteries of God, wherefore he did cry unto the Lord, and his heart was softened. On the other hand, Laman and Lemuel were distant from God. They did not know him. Nephi accepted challenging assignments without complaint, but Laman and Lemuel did murmur in many things. Murmuring is the scriptural equivalent of childish whining. The scripture records that they did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. Nephi's closeness to God enabled him to recognize and appreciate God's tender mercies. In contrast, when Laman and Lemuel saw Nephi receiving blessings, they were wroth with him because they understood not the dealings of the Lord. Laman and Lemuel saw the blessings that they received as their due and petulantly assumed that they should have more. They seemed to view Nephi's blessings as wrongs committed against them. 
This is the scriptural equivalent of disgruntled entitlement. Nephi exercised faith in God to accomplish what he was asked to do. In contrast, Laman and Lemuel, being hard in their hearts, did not look unto the Lord as they ought. They seemed to feel that the Lord was obligated to provide answers to questions they had not posed. The Lord maketh no such thing known unto us, they said, but they didn't even make the effort to ask. This is the scriptural equivalent of derisive skepticism. Because they were distant from the Savior, Laman and Lemuel murmured, became contentious, and were faithless. They felt that life was unfair and that they were entitled to God's grace. In contrast, because he had drawn close to God, Nephi must have recognized that life would be the most unfair for Jesus Christ. Though absolutely innocent, the Savior would suffer the most. The closer we are to Jesus Christ in the thoughts and intents of our hearts, the more we appreciate His innocent suffering, the more grateful we are for grace and forgiveness, and the more we want to repent and become like Him. Our absolute distance from Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ is important, but the direction we're heading is even more crucial. God is more pleased with repentant sinners who are trying to draw closer to Him than with self-righteous, fault-finding individuals who, like the Pharisees and scribes of old, don't realize how badly they need to repent. As a child, I sang a Swedish Christmas carol that teaches a simple but powerful lesson. Drawing near to the Savior causes us to change. The lyrics go something like this. When Christmas morning gleams, I want to go to the stable, where God in the nighttime hours already rests upon the straw. How good thou wast to desire to come down to the earth. Now I do not wish to waste my childhood days in sin anymore. Jesus, we need thee, thou dear children's friend. I no longer wish to grieve thee with my sins again. When we figuratively transport ourselves to the Bethlehem stable, where God in the nighttime hours already rests upon the straw, we can recognize better the Savior as a gift from a kind, loving Heavenly Father. Rather than feeling entitled to His blessings and grace, we develop an intense desire to stop causing God further grief. Whatever our direction, or distance to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. We can choose to turn toward them and draw closer to them. They will help us. As the Savior told the Nephites following His resurrection, And my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross, and after that I had been lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all men unto me. And for this cause have I been lifted up, Therefore, according to the power of the Father, I will draw all men unto me. To draw closer to the Savior, we must increase our faith in Him, make and keep covenants, and have the Holy Ghost with us. We must also act in faith, responding to the spiritual direction we receive. All of these elements come together in the sacrament. 
Indeed, the best way I know of to draw closer to God is to prepare conscientiously and partake worthily of the sacrament each week. A friend of ours in South Africa shared how she came to this realization. When Diane was a new convert, she attended a branch outside of Johannesburg. One Sunday, as she sat in the congregation, the layout of the chapel made it so that the deacon didn't see her as the sacrament was passed. Diane was disappointed but said nothing. Another member noted the omission and mentioned it to the branch president after the meeting. As Sunday school began, Diane was invited to an empty classroom. A priesthood holder came in. He knelt down, blessed some bread, and handed her a piece. She ate it. He knelt down again, blessed some water, and handed her a small cup. She drank it. Thereafter, Diane had two thoughts in rapid succession. First, oh, he, the priesthood holder, did this just for me. And then, oh, he, the Savior, did this just for me. Diane felt Heavenly Father's love. Her realization that the Savior's sacrifice was just for her helped her feel close to Him and fueled an overwhelming desire to keep that feeling in her heart, not just on Sunday, but every day. She realized that although she sat in a congregation to partake of the sacrament, the covenants she made anew each Sunday were individually hers. The sacrament helped and continues to help Diane feel the power of godly love, recognize the Lord's hand in her life, and draw closer to the Savior. The Savior identified the sacrament as indispensable to a spiritual foundation. He said, And I give unto you a commandment that ye shall do these things, partake of the sacrament. And if ye shall do these things, blessed are ye, for ye are built upon my rock. But whoso among you shall do more or less than these are not built upon my rock, but are built upon a sandy foundation. And when the rain descends and the floods come and the winds blow and beat upon them, they shall fall. Jesus did not say, If rain descends, if floods come, and if winds blow, but when. No one is immune from life's challenges. We all need the safety that comes from partaking of the sacrament. On the day of the Savior's resurrection, two disciples traveled to a village called Emmaus. Unrecognized, the risen Lord joined them on the journey. As they traveled, He taught them from the scriptures. When they reached their destination, they invited Him to dine with them. And it came to pass, as He sat at meat with them, He took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew Him, and He vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us by the way and while He opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven apostles gathered together. And then they testified to the apostles that the Lord is risen indeed. And they told what things were done in the way and how He was known of them in breaking of bread. The sacrament truly helps us know our Savior. 
It also reminds us of his innocent suffering. If life were truly fair, you and I would never be resurrected. You and I would never be able to stand clean before God. In this respect, I'm grateful that life isn't fair. At the same time, I can emphatically state, because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, ultimately, in the eternal scheme of things, there will be no unfairness. All that is unfair about life can be made right. Our present circumstances may not change, but through God's compassion, kindness, and love, we will all receive more than we deserve, more than we can ever earn, and more than we can ever hope for. We're promised that God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. No matter where you stand in your relationship to God, I invite you to draw near to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, the ultimate benefactors and givers of all that is good. I invite you to attend sacrament meeting each week and partake of the holy emblems of the Savior's body and blood. I invite you to feel God's nearness as He is made known to you as He was to the disciples of old in the breaking of the bread. As you do, I promise that you will feel nearer to God. Natural tendencies to childish whining, disgruntled entitlement, and derisive skepticism will dissipate. Those sentiments will be replaced by feelings of greater love for Heavenly Father's gift of His Son. As we draw closer to God, the enabling power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ will come into our lives. And as with the disciples on the way to Emmaus, we will find that the Savior has been nearby all along. I so witness and testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Our Father in heaven, at the conclusion of this session of General Conference, we express our gratitude for this inspired music and for thy words given to us by thy living prophets, seers, and revelators. We're grateful for thy Son, Jesus Christ, for his restored gospel. And also we're grateful for thy Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are grateful for thy prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, and we pray for him and for his health. And also, Father, we pray for the security of all the missionaries that are preaching thy gospel in many corners of this world. And we pray these things in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 186th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.
LDS Church Mission is a life-changing experience for a young man or woman. Don't let finances keep it from happening. Deseret First Credit Union has a special savings account that will help your future missionary serve and focus on the things that are truly important. It's called the Mission Savings Fund. The Mission Savings Fund from Deseret First Credit Union pays a higher rate than regular savings accounts, allows anyone you choose to make unlimited deposits for any amount, and is designed for long-term savings. Save as much as you want, when you want. Set up a Mission Savings Fund today at Deseret First Credit Union for your children, grandchildren, anyone you know and love who plans to serve a mission. Call or visit a branch or apply and sign online at dfcu.com. The Mission Savings Fund from Deseret First Credit Union, serving the LDS community. Membership and eligibility required. Federally insured by NCUA. The annual Emergency Essentials Case Slot Sale is here. A great time to stock up on everything you'll need when times get tough, like a big storm, an earthquake, or some other disaster. Or perhaps you'll encounter a job loss, illness, or accident. Whatever the future holds, your best time to get ready is now during our annual Case Slot Sale. Save up to 70% when you buy in quantities. Milk, meat, eggs, fruits, grains, beans, and veggies, all deeply discounted when you buy at least six cans. Water solutions are also reduced, along with power backup, heat, shelter, emergency kits, and more. Visit Emergency Essentials in Murray, Bountiful, South Jordan, or Orem and take home big case lot savings. Or visit us online at BePrepared.com and we'll deliver these savings right to your door. That's the Emergency Essentials case lot sale happening this month in Murray, Bountiful, South Jordan, and Orem and online at BePrepared.com. Emergency Essentials, helping people prepare at BePrepared.com. Continue the tradition with your daughters and granddaughters and join me this Saturday for Ladies Night at Deseret Book. Enjoy 20% off your entire purchase and the chance to win prizes all evening long. Be one of the first 100 to arrive at each location and receive a free gift. Come to the downtown Salt Lake City Deseret Book to meet Ardeth Cap, Callie Reed, and Al Fox Caraway. Save the date. Ladies Night this Saturday, 6 to 8 p.m. at Deseret Book. Handel's Messiah Like you've never heard it before The Mormon Tabernacle Choir and Orchestra at Temple Square have released a new edition by Mac Wilberg of one of the most beloved pieces of music of all time Available at Deseret Book it's over 5,000 miles from Salt Lake to Brussels, but when terror struck, it hit very close to home, injuring three Utah missionaries. I saw fire in front of my face and around my body. Two have returned to Utah, but one still waits to come home, recovering in a European hospital. You're going to get better. Yeah. From the minute the unthinkable happened in Brussels, KSL News Radio kept you informed every step of the way. We feel blessed that they survived. However, we know there's a lot of people that didn't have the same outcome. With breaking information about the condition of these brave missionaries and reaction from their families as they recover. There were a lot of loved ones that did not receive a positive phone call. And our hearts break. And our hearts break. From tragedy to healing, our mission is to make sure their mission, their story, is told completely. LDS missionary Mason Wells says he's lucky his injuries weren't worse, and God has a plan for everything in his life. When breaking news hits close to home, we take care of our own. KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM.
11.57 in the KSL 24-hour newsroom. I'm Mark Juke. This is a KSL conference report. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gather in a sunny Salt Lake City and around the world for the first general session of the Church's 186th General Conference. Church President Thomas S. Monson presided over the conference this morning as leaders of the Church called on members to nourish the seed of the gospel, to teach their children how to be guided by the Spirit, to forgive and to be humble, to attend the temple, and to go forward with faith. President Henry B. Eyring of the Church's First Presidency opened this session of conference asking members to nourish and soften the soil in which they've planted the seeds of their testimonies. He says, the seed is the word of God, the soil is the heart of the person who receives that seed. All of us have had our faith tested by precious blessings delayed, vicious attacks of those who wanted to destroy our faith, temptations to sin, and selfish interests that reduced our efforts to cultivate and soften the spiritual depths of our hearts. President Eyring says some do not see the withering of faith within themselves. He says there will be a precious opportunity over the next couple of days for people to choose to soften their hearts. Sister Mary R. Durham, second counselor in the primary general presidency, spoke this morning, calling on parents to help prepare their children for life by teaching them about the Holy Ghost and by helping them understand and to recognize the gift they receive at baptism. We need not fear as we see our children enter the waters of life for we have helped them rid themselves of worldly weight. Sister Durham says that gift will continue to lighten the weight they carry and lead them back to their heavenly home. Elder Gary E. Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles outlined three ways in which he says people can use priesthood keys and authority to bless their lives and the lives of others. They include preparing for missionary service, attending the temple, and going forward with faith. I testify that priesthood authority and priesthood keys start the engine open the gates of heaven, facilitate heavenly power, and pave the covenant pathway back to our loving Heavenly Father. Elder Stevenson says the keys of the priesthood are safely in the possession of prophets, seers, and revelators assigned to use them in accordance with the Lord's will. Elder Dale G. Renlin of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles was the concluding speaker of this morning's session. He says the more people distance themselves from God and Jesus Christ, the more entitled they feel to their grace and blessings. The closer we are to Jesus Christ in the thoughts and intents of our hearts, the more we appreciate his innocent suffering, the more grateful we are for grace and forgiveness, and the more we want to repent and become like him. Elder Renlund, though, says while distance is important, God is more pleased with repentant sinners who are trying to draw closer to him than to those who, he says, don't realize how badly they need to repent 